thing. We want to welcome those of you that are able to join us. You're not in the room. It's a full house today, but you're watching online. We're so grateful that you're able through technology to do that, whether you're at one of our locations or our microsite in St. George, or you are just comfortably sitting on your couch. Get here next week. We'd love to have you here in the room with us where everything is happening. Well, we're in this Mojinic series, and we're starting to land the plane. We're going to wrap it up next week. But today, my goal right off the bat is to make you extremely uncomfortable. And so you already are. So now you're uncomfortable about being uncomfortable. So I want to start off, before we get deep into the message, by just reading you a list of adjectives. And before we do that, I want you to know that um, my goal is for you to be uncomfortable by the end of hearing this list. If you're not, if somehow I missed you in this list, feel free to shout out your adjective when I'm done and make those around you very uncomfortable if you do that. All right. But here's what I want to do. What do you call a group of Lying, cheating, greedy, covetousness, lustful, porn-watching, tax... Are you uncomfortable yet? (laughs) Racist, jealous, judgmental, lonely, angry people who eat too much, spend too much, drink too much, medicate too much, worry too much, smoke too much, who gather together because they believe Jesus is the hope of the world and they need more of that hope. We call that the church. And some of you, you're thinking, I thought this was a bunch of holy people gathered in here. And so I'm not sure. And others of you, you really thought, I don't belong here. And now after seeing that list, you may have to reconsider. Because here's the deal. The church as an entity is actually not a thing or a place. It's people. It always freaks me out when people say, the church should do this. Or the church should be, and it's like, I don't know what they, the church, that's us. We are the people who are a part of the church. And it's not even where everyone agrees on everything. Some of us make assumptions about the church. Well, the church, the people in the church believe this. I was having some conversations yesterday where people were kind of talking to me as if, yeah, I'm tracking with you. And I was just giving them a blank stare like, I'm not tracking with you. But there's assumptions that are made about us because we are part of a church or because we are a part of a a following. But the church is actually a gathering. It's a gathering of diverse, imperfect people that we just read about who don't agree on everything, but we agree on these two key essential items. Number one is that God sent his son into the world to forgive our sins. Number two is we believe that when God sent his son into the world, he extended, listen to this, he extended something to us, to you and I, that we are now responsible to extend to others, especially those who would not yet consider themselves part of the kingdom of God or more so part of the church itself. And the thing that we are called to extend is simply this, grace, grace. When I was 16 years old, I made a purchase. It's my first big purchase. It cost me $75. It was a non-running, beat-down, junker Chevy Vega. And this thing was awesome. It had to be towed to my house. But as a 16-year-old, I committed to my dad that I was going to make this thing run again. Something had happened, blown head gasket. Um, the thing wasn't working at all. And so the entire engine had to be torn down and rebuilt. And so I would spend my afternoons after school digging in and grease and oil and cleaning up gook and parts and trying to figure out how to make this thing run. And eventually, after three months of hard work, we were able to actually get the engine to turn over. 
And I'll never forget driving around the block. And I mean, I'm waving at the neighbors like, yes, I'm in my Chevy Vega. But by the time I had made the loop around the neighborhood, and just as I was cresting the curve to get back to the house, the engine made a horrific sound and then seized up and stopped moving. It was not fun. And what I later learned was there was this thing called the oil pump. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And the oil pump is sort of like our heart, right? It's pumping the blood. It, the oil pump is pumping the oil through the engine, all through the engine. Because here's what I learned. An engine is amazing. Like, it is, is well designed and engineered. And there are specific parts that all work together. And they're so specific that they, they, they rub together. And the oil is necessary because if there is a lack of oil, then eventually the engine will destroy itself from within. And grace is, is like that. Grace is that oil that God has, has demonstrated to us and given to us. It's the oil in the local church. It's the oil in the kingdom of God. It's the oil. Grace is the oil in the culture and the society that we live in. It allows people... It's God's way of allowing people who are different from each other to actually come together without destroying each other. But here's the challenge. Extending grace to me is easy. Extending grace to ourselves is simple. But extending grace to other people, come on. It's not that easy for us. Extending grace to certain people, you're thinking of them right now, is really difficult for us. Extending it to certain kinds of people, certain groups of people, certain groups of people who embrace certain behaviors or attitudes or, or ways that they approach life. All of us have those kind of people or a group of people to whom, if we were honest, it is very difficult to extend grace. The same grace, hello, that has been extended to you and you and you and you and this guy. But it's very difficult to extend it out. And Jesus tells us why. And he tells us why by asking a very unsettling question. It's a difficult question. It's like being punched in the face. Seriously. Here's the question that Jesus asked. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Hello? Why do you focus so much on your brother's eye? Why are you so amped up? about the other person's sin, about the other person's issues and attitudes, and pay no attention to your own. It is the plank in your own eye. Why are you concern, so concerned about what the other person needed and received grace from God for, but are paying no attention to the areas of your own life? It's the plank in your own eye. He goes on to say this. How can you say to your brother, yo, bro, let me take the speck out of your eye. Let me tell you what you ought to be doing. Let's have coffee and I can tell you how you ought to be changing. How you ought to be acting, viewing, voting. Let me tell you how God views you. Jesus said... Let me take the speck out of your old eye, why, out of your own eye. Why do you ask that question when all the time there is what? A plank in your own eye. It's huge. You can't even see. And then he says these two words, you hypocrite. That's a noun 
that matches the adjectives we read earlier on. You hypocrite. We may also use the word self-righteous. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do you know the group of people that Jesus had the most conflict with? It wasn't those traditional sinners in that sense. He had the most problems, the most conversations, the most pushback from those who represented graceless, oilless religion in their lives. People whose planks made it impossible for them to see people the way Jesus saw them. People who maybe didn't actually believe they were currently in need of God's grace. They were so good. And Jesus had no patience for them. I don't want to be one of those people, and I know you don't want to be one of those people either. And so here's where we need to insert a story. Jesus used stories, we call them parables, to just smack us over the head with truth that we may not understand otherwise. And it's appropriate here. And this story is probably one that you know. And the audience for the story is so important. And I want to give you a spoiler. The audience was really two groups. It was the unrighteous and the self-righteous. They were both in need of grace, and they were both in the audience. And here's how Jesus started this. This is the audience. In, verse 15, in Luke 15, verse 1, this is, this is where he sets it up. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners, and stop there, tax collectors were so nasty that they weren't even included as sinners, right? <laughs> they had to be separated out as their own group, right? The IRS. These are, and in this culture, <laughs> in this culture, they, they, were, they were really powerful. Like, they would abuse their power. They were, they were hated. They intimidated. A lot of them, they stole they were their own category of sinner. So the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around. They were, they were coming in close to hear Jesus. Basically, the worst people in that society. Think of the worst people you could think of in Las Vegas. Not your boss. The worst people you could think of in Las Vegas. Think of it. Like, man, that person, they, they're, they're a terrible individual, right? They were gathered to hear them. That means if Jesus were the pastor and you were a good church person, the front row of your church would be filled with the worst of our culture who couldn't wait to hear what would be shared. And wouldn't that be great if that was true of us? That would be, sorry to those of you in the front. That would be, that would be amazing. That would be something that would say this church is living out kingdom values when we're getting this right. So the front row of his audience was filled with the worst of society and the balcony was filled with this group. I like to think of it as the, remember the old Muppet show? And they would do the whole thing. And then there were the two old guys that would sit up kind of in their own box. And they would comment on everything. and give. That's who was in the balcony. And here's, here's what they say was there. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered. And I love that that word was used. It wasn't like they were just thinking or they just commented. They muttered. It means they had an attitude. I think it means they had a plank in their own eye. And they said, this man, this dude, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. The modern version of this man welcomes sinners and eats with them would be something like this. How can you have that type of person, blank, those people in your church? So those guys are sitting up in the balcony. And the worst sinners are sitting in the front. And Jesus thought, I've got a captive audience and I'm going to talk about grace. And I'm going to talk about truth. But I'm going to talk about ultimately our Heavenly Father. 
Because if they can get a picture of what our Heavenly Father is like, then they can understand what they should be like. Because if we want to do what Jesus said, we need to do what Jesus did. So here's the story. It begins in verse 11. It says this. There was a man who had two sons. Two sons. And you know, the older son, little spoiler, the older son was a behavior, and the younger son was a misbehavior. So in the story, is I'm going to tell it for you, the, the younger son came to the father, you know it well, and he said to the father, basically, is, this is what he said, he said, father, I wish you were dead. Because in that culture, he would have received his portion of the inheritance upon the death of his father. And he basically said, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. So if you can't speed it up, can we just divide it up now? And I can go and live my life and get out of here. And the audience, those in the balcony and those in the front, both of them, though there were sinners and saints, they both would have been shocked at this. They both would have been offended at the son's request. And they were equally shocked when the father said, I'll do it. And so he sold what he had and he divided it up and he gave it to the younger son. The son hangs around for a while, but then he goes off to a distant country where no one would know him. And he buys into a lifestyle that he can't afford. And then he runs out of money. A recession hits. He's broke. He's destitute. He's used up everything that his father took a lifetime to amass. And he's used it up. And then it gets worse. A famine comes. There's not enough food. It comes to that part of the country he's living in. And Jesus says that the man then found that he needed a job and he couldn't find anything to do except feed the pigs. And this is shocking because it's the story we assume it's this young Hebrew boy that's now sitting with the swine. But here's what you need to know. I would imagine at that point in the story, the younger son that has asked for it, he's gone off, he's wasted it. And the audience, both sinner and saint, would have both been, they would have been like, oh, yes. This is exactly what should have happened. This kid got exactly what he deserved. They would have actually been celebrating that a bit. We love that, don't we, sometimes? Like karma, justice. But it's not grace. And he's so hungry, he begins to think about eating what the pigs would eat. And if Jesus had stopped there, the impacting story that he told would have been about you better be careful. If you don't obey your father, you're going to do that. And all the dads in the audience, even the tax collector dads, would have gone home and gathered their family at dinner and said, listen, I want to tell you a story, son. If you don't obey me, you're going to end up sitting with pigs for the rest of your life. What an amazing story to tell. But that's not where it is. Everyone's leaning in. And Jesus says that then the son came to his senses. And when he came to his senses, he said... How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out, and I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. In other words, he understood, I've sinned against God. I've disobeyed God. I've, I've gone off of the purpose and the path that God had for me. And against you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In other words, I'm not even asking for redemption. I'm not even asking to be restored. I just need a J-O-B. Right? Just let me come back and make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. And everyone in the crowd, whoa, they're getting fired up. They're like, here it comes. This is the part we really like. Because he's going to go there and the father's going to give it to him. 
The Father's going to have a PowerPoint about here's where you went wrong and here's how you're going to need to do to restore yourself, right? And we're like fired up. But then Jesus puts a twist and he says that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with, and we think that's got to be the right word. Like he's ticked. He's angry. He's upset because that makes sense to you and I. That makes sense to our sort of kingdom that we would set in place. But it's not Majnik. It's not the way our Heavenly Father operates. It says this. He actually was filled with compassion for him. And compassion is a powerful word because compassion implies that it's something that's given, that it's not even something that was necessarily asked for. And it's actually something that the person who gives it has the power to hold, hold to themselves, right? Father didn't have to give compassion, but he did. And he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The father throws his arms around his stinking son, who had done everything to alienate and humiliate his father. And everyone in the room listening to Jesus would have been totally confused. And the son looks at his father and he kisses him. And the son's like, whoa, 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 dad. And he tries to give this speech that he's prepared, but his father wouldn't hear it. And in the, past, in the story, Jesus says, he quickly tells his servants, which I think is worth a pause. Because I was reading that this week, I thought, quickly, most of us would be like, okay, you're home, but let's take it slow. Right? Like maybe you go to rehab for a little bit. Or maybe we, we see if we can really trust you. Maybe we don't even tell mom you're home yet. We kind of keep you over here. See if this is going to work out, if this is just a phase, right? But Jesus said the father quickly said to the servants, get the ring and place it on his finger. Get the robe and set it on him, which means my son is going to be my son again. And bring the calf because we're going to party. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have a feast. This is the right occasion we've been waiting for to have steak The crowd listening to Jesus is just like, I don't understand this guy. The father should be mad. The son should be disciplined. Well, wait on it because the older brother now comes. And the older brother comes. And when he shows up, he's been out behaving, right? He's doing his work. He's finished up his day. He probably has worship practice that night at church. He's got to go to and he hears this music, and he sees dancing as he gets closer to the house, and he's wondering what's going on. And he sees them taking the calf that's supposed to be for his birthday, or his wedding, or his graduation going past. And when he asks what's going on, the servants tell him, your brother is back. And your dad's throwing a party, and he's invited everybody, and he wants you to shower and clean up and come in. And we can identify with the older brother at that moment because we know how we would feel if a younger brother did that to our father. So the older brother became angry. I think we're like, exactly. And he refused to even go in. Have you ever met any angry Christians? You're like, I'm sitting next to one. You ever met any angry pastors? Don't look at me. You ever met or seen any angry TV preachers? They're just mad at something. They're just angry like they're preaching grace and they look ticked about it. Did you leave church at some point? Because you're tired of Christians who were so angry 
Because we have this dad who's throwing a party and there's dancing and singing going on. On the one side of the house, we have this younger son who's still so filled with shame and he can't believe that he's home and he feels so unqualified that he can't go in and be with the father and enjoy the party. And then on the other side of the house, we have this older son who's so angry and he feels overqualified. And he agrees that that brother shouldn't have a party and shouldn't be at the party. And he's furious. And he can't bring himself to celebrate because he's got a plank in his eye skewing his view. Neither one of them wants to be there. And all the dad wants is to celebrate. And everybody in Jesus' audience listening to this story is so confused because they've struggled like we do to know what God the Father is truly like. And especially when they don't understand how God views sinners. You have the righteous up in the balcony and the unrighteous down in the front row. They're in the same space and they're both confused. So here's what the father did. He went out and he pleaded with him. We always see the picture of the father running to the younger son and, and telling him, I'm so glad you're home. But we have this other picture of the father running to the older son and pleading with him and saying, come in. It's a party. But here's what the... Here's what the older son says to him. He says, look, all these years, you just hear him, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet, you never even gave me a young goat. Like, he gets steak. I never even got a euro. Like, come on. You never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, notice his tone, but when this son of yours... Not my brother, this son of yours, who has squandered your property. You realize, Dad, that what he's lost, we can't get, get back. Like, he squandered it. Like, it's gone. And let's not even talk about the prostitutes. Don't tell Mom about the prostitutes. She knew about that. Like, this is, this is a mess. Like, prostitutes, he comes home, and you kill the fattened calf for him. This is the older brother, and he's furious, and he won't go in. You know why some of us get angry? You know why some of you are angry Christians? Let me just take this guess. Because like the older brother, you think you deserve something from God that somebody else has gotten or might get eventually. You think you've been so faithful and obedient, and it's awesome. You've tithed. You've served. You did so many good things. But don't yell at me. Sometimes the holier you get, the angrier you get. I wonder if some of us, we don't, I, I wonder if some of us don't just believe in hell, not just as a theological or a biblical thing, but we believe in hell like a get even thing. It keeps us going. We like live with the hope that someday all those younger brothers are going to get exactly what they deserve. And I'm going to go, nah, 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 nah. That's terrible. That's not the image of the kingdom of God. You might be a good follower. You might be a great Christian. You can get a lot of people to follow that kind of Christianity. We've seen it. But you're not acting like Jesus. Here's what Tim Keller had to say. He said this. Now we can see one more reason why younger brothers are generally more open to the gospel than elder brothers. (laughs) Younger brothers have literally run from the Father physically and morally. It's easier for them to see their need. Older brothers have not. They're running away from God while they have physically and morally stayed close. See how hard it is for religious people to believe they are running from God? It's that plank. But they are. 
The gospel does not agree that there are spiritually two kinds of people in the world, good and bad. Instead, it says there are just two different kinds of running from God. You can run away by breaking the rules or by keeping them, but you are running nonetheless. And the father says to the older son, hey, listen, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You're getting your reward. You're not forgotten. You have been with me. And that's what's important to me is that you have been with me. But we had to celebrate, he says, and be glad because the brother of yours was dead. He wasn't with us. And now he's alive. He's with us again. He was lost. I mean, we knew where he was, like Idaho or somewhere. But now he wasn't with us. But now he's found. He is with us again. So just come to the party. Come to the table. I need you there. This was never about performance. This was never about proximity. This was always about grace. That's why we celebrate when baptisms happen, right? We should have confetti come out of the ceiling. Each time, what it's about and why we tell these stories, it's about someone returning to be with the Father again. And Jesus said, listen to this, when the Father chose to throw a party, it wasn't around those who had been consistently faithful, but rather for those who were not with him and are now with him. And that, if that bothers you a little bit, I'm pumped. You need to wrestle with that. You need to look in the mirror a bit. Check for planks. Because we all need to get more comfortable with that tension of grace and truth grace and truth. Here's the truth. We know the truth. The truth is sin is always damaging. That's the truth. We know that. Sin's terrible. It breaks people. Sin, sin broke the younger son. He squandered things that he could never get back again. There were consequences. But sin should break our heart just like it breaks God's heart. We should not be mad at the person if they're in sin. It should make us sad not mad, it should make us sad. We shouldn't celebrate when we see sin destroying someone as if they got what they deserve. We should cry because the Father, our Heavenly Father, takes our sins so seriously. And our Father seriously celebrates when repentance happens. God doesn't get mad at lost things. We, we don't normally either. Like, you lose your phone, you don't get mad at your phone. Oh, that freaking phone got lost again. No. You get mad at yourself. You seek. You search for it. If we're angry at the younger brother, it's because our anger grows out of our own self-righteousness. Somewhere in the back of my, our minds is this idea that I've been faithful, and that's awesome, seriously. And I, I've behaved, and that's what we should do. And God says, that's awesome. You need to do that. That's growth. That's, that's where I want you to live your life. You're obedient. But that's, that's not what this is about. That's not how grace is distributed. That's not the issue. Because when we get that, then it saturates our thinking like oil. And it, it softens up our self-righteousness. And we live in a way that sin always will continue to break our hearts. And repentance will stir our hearts. John, in his gospel, described Jesus as being full of grace and truth. So the question is, what are you full of? What are you full of? What comes out of you when you bump into somebody who's a sinner just like you? Maybe in a different way. Maybe they have a different adjective. But what are you full of? 
Because if you want to know what Jesus meant by what he said, you need to do exactly what Jesus did when he saw Matthew, the tax collector, in real life and said, Matthew, come and follow me. And oh, by the way, we're having dinner at your house tonight. We're going to sit around the table. And when he saw Zacchaeus up in the tree, he said, Zacchaeus, come down. And oh, by the way, we're having brunch today. So you need to get busy because I'm coming to your house and we're going to sit and we're going to be with each other together. And as a church, we need to ask, what are we full of? When, think, when, when people think of the crossing, what comes to mind? I hope they think this, that the church is the most appealing when grace is most apparent. I hope they think that about it. I hope they, listen, if they describe the crossing like that list of adjectives I read at the top, we're winning, right? That's exactly who we are. Yes, we have those people. Yes, I am or was one of those people. Yes, I'm discovering Jesus in my own journey. One of the main reasons that people don't connect in a church community has, often has very little to do with what they know and what they feel about Jesus. It has far more often what to do with what Christians they've met and the church experiences that they've had that they do not want to repeat. But the church is always more appealing when grace is more apparent. That's what the kingdom of God, that's what this Majnik is all about. The younger brothers and the older brothers all gathered at the same table, all understanding how unqualified we are to be there, all vividly aware of how desperately we need the grace of our Father. And we all sit down each next to each other, each of us with our own stuff, our sin, and we celebrate the grace that's been extended to all of us. I want to quote, close with a quote from a great author who just passed away recently, Rachel Held Evans. She said this. It was quoted at her memorial service yesterday, and I thought it was so perfect for today. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they're rich or worthy or good, but because they're hungry, because they said, yes. And there's always room for more. Father, thank you for making room for us. We bow our heads and we thank, thankfully lift our hearts to you. And we're so grateful that we are a people that have experienced your grace. God, and we don't take it lightly. Forgive us for where we have. Forgive us for how we've looked at others. Forgive us for how our views or how our perspective has skewed ultimately the grace that you desire us to extend. God, help us to see how powerful it could be if the person who needs grace so desperately were to get it from us, how transformational it could be in their life. Thanks for giving us that kind of grace. God, help us to be a church, to be a people, to be families, to be individuals that gather around the table of all different shapes and sizes and backgrounds and stories of lostness and foundness. And God, help us to welcome those who are lost, who just need a seat to process their story, to discover you, to get close to you. Let our grace extend to them, we pray. God, we're so grateful. We ask it in your name. Amen.